The following sermon is brought to you by Cornerstone Baptist Church. For more information on our teaching and preaching ministry, visit us online at cornerstoneorlando.org. The Worship of the Worthy One, Revelation chapter 5, verses 1 through 14. In particular, we're looking tonight beginning at verse 8. And when we last consider the throne room, this throne room vision now given to the Apostle John, a highly exalted one has entered the throne room, uh, a worthy one, a conqueror. And he has stepped forward now to take the scroll from the right hand of him who sits on the throne. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has prevailed. Uh, He's the promised seed of the woman. Uh, the one who would crush the serpent's head. Uh, he is the promised Messiah of God, the only one worthy of all the created order. Right? There's no one else worthy. No one in the earth, no one above the earth, under the earth. No one else worthy. He is the only one worthy to possess the kingdom, the only one worthy to sit upon the throne of David, the only one worthy to take the scroll out of the right hand of him who sits on the throne, the only one worthy to open its seals, and in opening its seals, the only one worthy to execute all of the decrees, all of the judgments of God concerning the time of the end, the only one worthy to bring the redemptive plans and purposes of God to their consummated and completed end. Now, upon hearing of this great warrior who has entered the throne room, John then turns at that, at hearing that description, John then turns and sees, verse six, in the midst of the throne and of the four living creatures and in the midst of the elders then stood a lamb, not the lion of Judah that he expected to see when he turned, but a lamb as though it had been slain, having seven horns, seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. Now, full understanding of the types and images of John's vision, then a full understanding given in the juxtaposition of these two pictures that are painted in the throne room. Uh, Two pictures between what John hears and what John sees. It's the juxtaposition of those two things that gives John a full understanding of the types and images used here in Revelation chapter five. This great conquering warrior has prevailed through his suffering as a sacrifice. Uh, Those two visions, as as it were, are laid upon one another so that we understand what's being spoken. He conquers through his suffering as a sacrifice. As John the Baptist would say, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. In other words, he conquers through his own death. He conquers and he now stands in the throne room of heaven, having been raised from the dead, victorious over the sin, over sin in the grave. And in light of our conversation earlier, he stands there bodily. He has ascended bodily into heaven and a glorified man, the God man now stands in heaven. Seven horns representing omnipotent strength, omnipotent power. Seven eyes representing divine wisdom, divine knowledge, omnisapience, omniscience. And these seven eyes, the Bible says, are the seven spirits of God. And the seven spirits of God, the spirit of God poured out upon who? At Pentecost, upon his church and poured poured out upon the church for mission so that his people would go into all the earth preaching the gospel as God gathers together his elect who are scattered abroad to the four corners of the earth, right? 
we are the ones upon whom the Spirit is poured such that we are empowered for mission that God may gather together his elect. He, this is, these are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And how, do, how is the Spirit sent? It's spent, it, he is sent through his people preaching the gospel. So seven eyes, and these are the seven spirits of God. At the appearance of this worthy one, the Lord Jesus Christ, all of the promises of God find their inaugurated and their eventual consummated fulfillment. They're inaugurated, their fulfillment is inaugurated, and it is a sure signal, if you will, that they will be brought to full completion. He is the one, this worthy one, the Lord Jesus Christ, he is the one who will bring to pass all that God has planned for those who love him. Uh, for those who are the called according to his purpose. He is the one who is, has, has overcome, and he is the one who will b- bring God's decreed purposes to pass. And brothers and sisters, we are those who overcome in him. As we talked about uh, in the first part of this sermon last week, uh, we're charged, the church is charged to overcome. To he who overcomes, I'll grant with him to sit on my throne as I also overcame and sat on my father's throne. So we are to be overcomers through faith in him, we overcome in union with him through faith. And the Lord Jesus Christ always leads us in triumph. Amen? Always leads us in triumph. So the Lord intends to encourage his church in her time of tribulation with these words. And the Lord is very gracious in doing this. And if you can remember with me, when we worked through the gospel of John, for example, and the Lord is in, his, in the upper room with his disciples. They're about to prepare to walk to the Garden of Gethsemane where the Lord would be arrested and he would be taken away to a mock trial and crucified. The Lord is about to depart his disciples by means of the cross. He's going to leave them. And the Lord says, I'm not going to leave you orphans. I'm going to come to you. And he comes to them by his spirit poured out uh, for mission at Pentecost. But the Lord visits us by his spirit who indwells us. But in these parting words of the Lord Jesus Christ, as the Lord met with his disciples in the upper room, the Lord knows what their ministry is going to be like. The Lord is aware of the tribulation of the church. He's aware of the persecution that the church faces. He's aware of the difficulties, the trials that the church is going to face in this age. And the Lord prepares his church with these encouraging words from Revelation chapter four, Revelation chapter five. He does that to encourage us. In John 16, he tells the disciples this. He says, listen, these things I have spoken to you that in me, you may have peace. In the world, you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. The Lord Jesus Christ tells his disciples that night in the upper room, you're going to face tribulation. They're going to be those who kill you thinking they do God's service. That's, that's what you're going to face. Now, brothers and sisters, we here, uh, we may not have faced the physical persecution that many saints throughout history have faced. Uh, many have faced death. Uh, there are those saints in the world today who face death for their, for their faith. Praise God that we haven't faced such persecution. But are we um, exempt from persecution here? <laughs> no, no, we're not. And if you've been here for any length of time, you know exactly what that's like. And you faced it yourself, the slander and the gossip and the reviling accusations that get hurled uh, against the Lord's people and against his church. Uh, we face persecution here, and the Lord intends, brothers and sisters, to encourage you and I through these words. He told the disciples that night in the upper room, I'm telling you these things in advance so that when they come to pass, you know that I told you ahead of time. Now, what 
purposes that serve for us? Well, it serves us in the fact that we know he is sovereign over all those things. The Lord is not absent from our difficulties. The Lord is present in our difficulty. He's there to help in our time of need. He doesn't give aid to to the angels, but he does give aid to the seed of Abraham. Praise God. And he's there to support us and to help us and to come to us by his spirit. So he overcomes us. He, He encourages us with his presence in telling us these, giving us these words. These words, this throne room vision is necessary and needed by the church today. We need to have a constant understanding, a, comp, a constant apprehension of this vision of the one seated upon the throne and the worthy one now who has taken the scroll in his right hand and begins to rule. Now, we need to have an understanding that the Lord Jesus Christ, having been glorified, ascended bodily into heaven, is now executing all the decreed purposes of God that are contained in that scroll. They're all coming to to pass exactly how they're written and exactly how God has planned, all of them working out for the good of God's people, do you see? And we can be encouraged, encouraged by that. So all of that in our, in our hearts and minds as we think about this text and the purpose of this text and what the Lord is doing uh, for us here in encouraging us from Revelation chapter 5, when the Lord steps forth then to take the scroll, worship erupts in the cosmos. All of heaven erupts in worship. It happens in concentric circles, as it were. Worship begins with those closest to the throne, the four living creatures and the 24 elders. They fall down on their faces and they worship the lamb. Worship then spreads among the the myriads, tens of thousands and thousands of thousands of angels that are around the throne. Finally, worship spreads from there to every creature, every creature which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and such as are in the sea and all that is in them. It's another way of saying every, everything and everyone erupts in the worship of the Lamb, the worthy one who takes the scroll and rules. All of creation sings a new song in praise to the Lamb of God, the lion from the tribe of Judah. Awesome. Amen. Awesome sight, right? Um, to, to imagine uh, what that scene must be like. And we'll be there soon. I get emotional talking about these things. I can sit in the back of this room when our worship on Sunday morning and cry. You know, <laughs> just, you know, be in the midst of the worship of God's people. It's a beautiful thing. This is going to be too much to handle. I'm going to be a blithering idiot in the back of the room. <laughs> uh, awesome, you know, awesome. So having considered the scroll and the Savior, this evening we come to verse 8 and the worship of their song in verse 8. Now when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb, each having a harp, golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints, and they sang a new song saying, you are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain and have redeemed us to God by your blood out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation and have made us kings and priests to our God and we shall reign on the earth. Now what sets off this eruption of worship in the cosmos are the words which open verse eight. Now when he had taken the scroll, that sets off the worship, sets off the worship in heaven. The Lord Jesus Christ, taking the scroll out of the right hand of him who sits on the throne, signifies that all that is written there will be accomplished. 
It signifies that it has begun. (laughs) The time of the end has begun. All that is promised has begun now to be fulfilled and will be fulfilled. He has all authority given to him. Behold, all authority has been given to me, Jesus says, in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples. Right? This is the beginning of the end, so to speak. This is, these are the last days. This is the church age that precedes the return of the Lord Jesus Christ in glory. These days have begun, and all that God has decreed will be brought to pass. It's a powerful indication that a full and complete and final victory is at hand. We live, brothers and sisters, on the precipice of that victory. Do you see? The victory's already won. The victory of the Lord has, has already taken place. He has prevailed. But now he has taken the scroll and he has begun to rule and has begun to execute all of those decrees and will bring them to their full and consummated end in victory and in glory. And the Lord Jesus Christ is doing that even now. He is working everything to its appointed end. And we have the blessing and privilege of being a part of that at this age in the church. All that remains, all that remains will be executed, will be accomplished when the Lord Jesus Christ uh, takes the scroll and has begun to rule. Now, we're first introduced in verse 8 to the worshipers there, the initial worshipers in this worship that takes place in heaven. Those in the immediate presence of the throne. And again, in the, in the first of those concentric circles, those in the immediate presence of the throne, we see the four living creatures. Those four living creatures, again, if you remember that, representing the whole of creation, the whole of creation. And then the 24 elders representing the whole of the church, the entirety of the church. 12 representing Old Testament saints, as it were, and 12 representing New Testament saints. And these 24 fall down prostrate, on their faces before the lamb in worship. The Hebrew word for worship actually included, the word itself included the notion of lowering yourself, of of pressing yourself down. Part of the concept of worship was pressing yourself down. Uh, John the Baptist, again, I must decrease so that he may increase. I'm pressing myself down to magnify the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, right? In worship, it's, there's this concept of pressing yourself down. The Greek word for worship, proskuneo, includes the concept there of prostrating yourself, of lowering yourself, um, placing yourself upon your face in total submission. It's, again, the concept that carries the sense of pressing yourself down in worship of one who is to be exalted. The posture is communicated in those words. And we're concerned with the heart posture, but there's something about the physical posture that communicates something about the heart posture. I, was, I had the blessing of uh, being over when we didn't have a Sunday night service here. We had a uh, uh, membership matters. I jotted over to uh, Forest Hills to hear our brother, uh, Tyler Renfro, preach a sermon at Forest Hills on Sunday night that evening, and was blessed to hear uh, Tyler preach of the Pharisee and the tax collector, the publican. And just the the physical posture of the publican uh, coming into the temple, as it were, to pray, could not even lift his eyes to heaven, but rather beat his breast, right? The, The physical posture of the publican communicating something about the heart, the heart posture, the heart posture of the publican. And that's, I would submit to you, is the right heart posture of one who truly worships the Lord. It's uh, we 
decrease, that he may increase. We are pressed down. We are humbled, that he may be exalted. Um, the one who humbles himself is lifted up, raised up by the Lord. That posture, again, the physical posture here of prostrating themselves on their faces before the Lamb communicates something, along with their words, communicates something of the attitude of the heart, right, that, that represents um, worship, the worship of the Lamb. So they prostrate themselves before the Lamb. Each had a harp, the Bible says, and golden bowls full of incense. And I want to talk about those for a moment. There are, considering the harp, uh, they're worshiping God. They're about to worship God in song, and they're each holding a harp in their hands. Now, there, there are striking parallels between this vision given to John uh, of the heavenly worship and that worship instituted by David when he first brought the Ark of the Covenant up to the stronghold at Zion. That account is found in 1 Chronicles 15. Turn there with me, if you will. And we don't have time to, to spend a great bit of detail in these texts, but I commend them to your study. If you'll read through these, it will be a blessing to you. In 1 Chronicles 15, the Ark of God, we talked about this some this morning uh, during the first hour, the Ark of God had essentially been exiled for nearly a century. The Ark of God had been lost. The Israelites were using the Ark of God as a good luck charm, as it were, in, in battle. And uh, so they were in battle against the Philistines. The Philistines defeated the Israelites as a judgment of God upon Israel for their disobedience. And the Ark of the Covenant was lost to the Philistines. The Philistines take the Ark. They set up the Ark in the... In the, the the temple of their god Dagon, and there's that uh, humorous account of uh, Dagon falling over on his face, uh, finally falls over on his face, his head breaks off and his hands come off, those false stupid idols of the world that can't hear nor speak or see. Uh, Dagon falls over, and uh, so the, the Philistines were eventually cursed with sores and boils, and so they wanted nothing to do anymore with the ark, with the ark of God. They had to get it out of there. I think it was roughly seven months or so with the Philistines. So the ark was put on carts and they set the, the cattle off. And the ark eventually winds up in Kiriat Jerem, Gibeonite city, in the house of Abinadab. And it's there for quite some time. And the ark essentially lost, was no longer in the tabernacle, was no longer in the most holy place, was no longer among the people of God. And it really is uh, emblematic, if you will, of God's presence. Uh, from, from among the people being gone. <laughs> God was no longer with them, so to speak, in battle, was no longer with them, so to speak, in their worship, so-called, in the tabernacle. Israel was suffering God's judgment for their disobedience. The ark was representative of God's presence among the people. His presence in judgment over their enemies as the ark followed them into battle or followed them into the promised land, and God's presence in mercy toward his people. It was called the mercy seat. It sat in the most holy place. And the high priest would go into the most holy place once a year uh, to make atonement or to offer atonement for the sins of the people. Again, the ark previously contained within the most holy place. But when David, the king, determines to bring the ark into Jerusalem or into the stronghold at Zion, it's the first time that the Levites and the people are said to worship before the ark or to worship, as we understand that, in the very presence of God. Before, it was behind the curtains of the most holy place 
where the high priest would only go in once a year. Now, as David brings the ark up to Jerusalem, the people are worshiping before the ark. In other words, they're worshiping and praising before the presence of God. The worship of Israel prior to this point, think with me about this, was, was virtually silent in that there were, there were words of confession that were spoken. There were words that were spoken, but no music, no song. Uh, God had instructed, in Numbers chapter 10, God had instructed Moses to make two silver trumpets. A, trumpets, a trumpet blast would gather the, peop- the people together. A trumpet blast would scatter them back to their tents. A trumpet blast would direct the people as they marched out of the camp. Uh, the trumpet was to be blasted in their feast days over their burnt offerings. But other than that, the worship... The cultic worship of Israel in the wilderness was essentially silent. Uh, There was no music. But when David brought the ark into Jerusalem for the first time, like those 24 elders around the throne in Revelation 5, given a harp and given a song to sing, David institutes 24 orders of Levitical priests to sing songs before the Lord and to play instruments, harps and lyres and trumpets and cymbals. And music, for the first time, really was introduced into the worship of God. And David himself, it says in in chapter 15, if you look at uh, verse 25, David and the elders of Israel and the captains over thousands went to bring the ark of the covenant of the Lord from the house of Obed-Edom with joy. And I would submit to you that this, um, this notion of introducing music into the worship of God before the ark is as a result of their joy, as a result of their joy in the Lord for what the Lord had done. David is rejoicing in the Lord. And one of the ways in which he expresses that faith filled joy is through song, songs of celebration and praise of the Lord. Verse 26, and so it was when God helped the Levites who bore the ark of the covenant of the Lord that they offered seven bulls and seven rams. David was was clothed with a robe of fine linen, as were all the Levites who bore the ark, the singers, and Chenaniah, the music master with the singers. David also wore a linen ephod. Thus all Israel brought up the ark of the covenant of the Lord with shouting and with sounds of the horn, with trumpets and with cymbals, making music with string instruments and harps. And it happened... As the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord came up to the city of David, and Michael, Saul's daughter, looked through a window and saw King David whirling and playing music, and she despised him in her heart. That's wickedness. <laughs> David rejoicing in the Lord, celebrating the Lord, celebrating the Lord's goodness, the Lord's mercy, the Lord's grace in music. And David danced. Uh, it might be appropriate to say like in, in the, the hymn that we sometimes have sung, I'll be more undignified than this. Uh, David sort of dancing like a celebratory fool <laughs> before the ark of God in joy, rejoicing at God's great deliverance uh, in music introduced in the worship of God. The sound would have been deafening. Um, Trumpets, horns, cymbals, hearts, Levites, if you can imagine, singing at the top of their lungs. And that worship expressing joy in God's presence again among the people. God's presence back, as it were, among the people that they might worship before him. They take joy in worshiping before God. And brothers, they're worshiping before the ark. (laughs) This scene in Revelation chapter 5, they're worshiping before the one who is seated upon the throne and before the Lamb. Uh, 
and they're worshiping with joy in the presence of God. In 1 Chronicles 16, the worship reverberates in concentric circles, not unlike the worship of heaven described in Revelation chapter 5. The worship begins with Israel. If you look at verse 9 or verse 8, Oh, give thanks to the Lord. Call upon his name. Make known his deeds among the peoples. Sing to him. Sing psalms to him. Talk of all his wondrous works. Glory in his holy name. Let the the hearts of those rejoice who seek the Lord. Seek the Lord and his strength. Seek his face forevermore. Remember his marvelous works, which he has done, his wonders and the judgments of his mouth. O seed of Israel, his servant. You children of Jacob, his chosen ones. All right, so worship begins... For all of God's wondrous works toward them, the seed of Israel. But then in concentric circles, it's then expanded to the nations. If you look at verse 23, it expands to the nations. Sing to the Lord, all the earth. Proclaim the good news of his salvation from day to day. Declare his glory among the nations, his wonders among all peoples. For the Lord is great and greatly to be praised. He is also to be feared above all gods. For all the gods of the peoples are idols, but the Lord has made the heavens. Honor and majesty are before him. Strength and gladness are in his place. And so it goes from the worship of Israel to the worship of the nations. And lastly, it's eventually, it eventually incorporates the whole of creation. If you remember those concentric circles in Revelation 5, we see the same concentric circles now in this depiction of worship from First Chronicles 16. If you look at verse 31, let the heavens rejoice and the earth be glad. Let them say among the nations, the Lord reigns. Let the sea roar in all its fullness. Let the field rejoice in all that is in it. Then the trees of the woods shall rejoice before the Lord, for he is coming to judge the earth. The trees rejoice because he is coming to judge the earth. You see? Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his mercy endures forever. And say, save us, O God of our salvation. Gather us together, deliver us from the Gentiles to give thanks to your holy name, to triumph in your praise. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel from everlasting to everlasting. And all the people said, amen, and praised the Lord. Awesome, right? This, this beautiful picture of worship. In First Chronicles 16, they sang a new song. That was the song that they sang. That song also recorded in part in Psalm 96 as well. And in Israel at that time, they would have had to search back, as it were, the history of Israel to remember a time when they sang in worship together. It wasn't a part of regular worship in Israel. Each time a new song was given, The song originally commemorated a great victory or a great deliverance that the Lord had provided to his people. It commemorated God's deliverance. And so they would have had to go back in their history to remember times when they sang together in worship. Uh, Miriam, excuse me, Miriam with her timbrel uh, leading the song of Moses after the Lord delivered Israel out of the fiery furnace in Egypt. In Revelation In Revelation 15, incidentally, in Revelation 15, they're going to sing the song of Moses again. But now it's not just the song of Moses, it's the song of Moses and of the Lamb, right? So we'll see that in Revelation 15, a couple of years. Um, The song of Deborah, (laughs) uh, after God's victory over the Canaanites, Judges chapter 5 is another example. Um, Deborah sings and leads Israel in song, commemorating God's deliverance of Israel from the hand of 
of the Canaanites. In First, Chron- in First Chronicles 16, it's the establishment of the kingdom of Israel under David. God having defeated their enemies all around and establishing the kingdom of Israel under the rule of David and the Ark of the Covenant coming back uh, amongst the, the people. God's deliverance from their enemies and God's presence among the people. Turn with me to Isaiah 42. Isaiah 42. In Isaiah 42, uh, there is uh, one of the servant songs of Isaiah, uh, talking about the Lord's servant. And we know these servant songs in Isaiah to be songs about the Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ. And in Isaiah 42, a chapter about the Lord's coming Messiah, who will provide a great deliverance, will give a great victory, and provide for an even greater exile than their exile from Egypt. Verse 10 says this, Isaiah 42, verse 10. Sing to the Lord a new song and his praise from the ends of the earth. You who go down to the sea and all that is in it, you coastlands and you inhabitants of them. You can see how um, the Lord's victory is certainly a victory for his people, a deliverance of his people from, from their enemies, but also how it includes the whole creation of the Lord Jesus. We're going to get there in Romans chapter 8 here very soon, where the creation itself is redeemed with the sons of glory and how God renews the, the heavens and renews the earth. And so all of creation gets involved in the worship of God. You coastlands, you inhabitants of them, listen to verse 11, let the wilderness and its cities lift up their voice, the villages that Kedar inhabits. Let the inhabitants of Selah sing. Let them shout from the top of the mountains. Let them give glory to the Lord and declare his praise in the coastlands. The Lord shall go forth like a mighty man. He shall stir up his zeal like a man of war. He shall cry out, yes, shout aloud. He shall prevail against his enemies. We have a song, right, that is commemorating, memorializing the great deliverance of a mighty conquering warrior. It's essentially what we see in Revelation chapter 5, a song sung by the people of God in the worship of God that, that triumphs in, that revels in the great conquering warrior king who has prevailed for us, on behalf of us, against our enemies. Those enemies are going to be judged. He is going to be exalted in majesty, and we are delivered, do you see? And it's a song that commemorates that. In Revelation chapter 5 they sing a new song in commemoration of the victory of the Lamb. Whenever a new song is sung, it's sung of a great deliverance. You are worthy to take the scroll, to open its seals, for you were slain and have redeemed us to God by your blood out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation and have made us kings and priests to our God and we shall reign on the earth. I would, I would submit to you that the worship of David among God's old covenant people in Israel is simply typological. Typological. As awe-inspiring as that worship must have been to the people. As the Lord Jesus Christ is sitting on the Mount of Olives with his disciples, his disciples turn to Jesus and say, look at the city. (laughs) These buildings, how beautiful. And that's when Jesus, in giving the Olivet Discourse, says that not one stone will be left upon another. But they're in awe in awe over the worship of God. And that worship is types and shadows. (laughs) That worship is simply pointing forward to something far more glorious, and it's depicted for us here in Revelation 5. It's only a shadow of that worship that will be in the presence of God 
that fills the heavenly tabernacle when the people of God are gathered together uh, in that day. And brothers and sisters, it won't merely be David who dances and sings among us. Certainly will be David, but it will be the great Davidic king, David's Lord, who dances and sings among us. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 12. And here, uh, Hebrews quoting a messianic psalm, Psalm 22, says, I will declare your name to my brethren, and in the midst of the assembly, I will sing praise to you. We'll be singing worship to God, singing and praising the Lamb, and the Lamb will be amongst us, singing with us. Awesome thought. Incidentally, in thinking of that, how is it here that our worship fits into that worship. Have you ever thought about that before? We, we, we sometimes refer to that on a Sunday morning. Like we'll say, um, you know, our worship is joined together now with the saints in heaven who are praising God. Our worship is joined to theirs. How does our worship here on earth fit into this picture? Well, did you hear the words in Revelation chapter five? Our words, our words are on the lips of those 24 elders. Those 24 elders, you could say 12 sons of Israel and 12 apostles, representing the entirety of the church, Old Testament and New Testament, those 24 elders representing the entirety of the Lord's church, our words are on their lips as they sing. What was the content of their singing? Verse 9. You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain and you have redeemed us to God by your blood. There's not a Sunday that goes by that we don't talk about that very issue, right? That the Lord has redeemed us by his blood. Out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation, those representatives singing for the church are saying, you've redeemed us. You've redeemed us by your blood out of every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. You have made us kings and priests to our God, verse 10, and we shall reign on the earth. That new song is sung by the church, (laughs) New song sung by the bride of the Lord Jesus Christ as represented in the 24 elders. They stand, brothers and sisters, they stand closest to the throne, right? They stand closest to the throne in front of angels, in front of the angels, proclaiming on our behalf in this particular worship service, the worthiness of the Lord to take the scroll and to open its seals. There's something to be said about the worship of a redeemed humanity. Um, God, in his infinite wisdom, has determined that which would be most to his own glory in the redemption of a fallen people, right? In his infinite wisdom, he determined that his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, was, was worthy of worship. And not merely the worship of angels, not merely the worship of a heavenly host, so to speak, but the worship of a redeemed humanity, the worship of those who would be bought with his own blood. That kind of worship is worship that is worthy of the worthy one. Do you see? Um, John Owen called the fall of Adam and Eve into sin, called it a happy fault. And what he means by that is that we as fallen sinners, through the redemption that we have in the Lord Jesus Christ, have been placed in a far better position than Adam would have ever been placed because we have been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. And in union with him, we have been made sons to our God, kings and priests to our God, and we will inherit with him. Oh, happy fault. 
in the same sense, the worship of God's people is magnified, if you will, to his glory and to the praise of his name because it comes from the hearts and lips of those who have been redeemed by his blood, who have been purchased by his blood. Those whom he shed his own blood for in love for them return love to him in their praise and worship in a way that angels never could, in a way, in a way that angels cannot worship. So I would submit to you that uh, it is glorifying to God, glorifying to the Son um, for the church to worship him in a way that no other aspect of creation can. And so they stand closest to the, the throne. They're in front of those myriads and myriads of angels uh, singing this song to the Lord, proclaiming his worthiness. Notice the nature of that worship. Notice the nature. First, they praise and worship the Lamb as worthy. He's worthy. He has prevailed. He is the one who, uh, with his own shed blood, has purchased a redeemed people to himself. He has, prepared, he has prevailed through his active obedience, through his passive obedience, his humiliation to his exaltation. The Lord Jesus Christ obeyed to the point of death, even the death of the cross. He has prevailed. In prevailing, he has won the new covenant, purchased the new covenant in his own blood for those who would put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. In that sense, all of the promises of God find their yes and amen in him alone. He has propitiated the wrath of God. He has reconciled his people to God. He has provided for them a provision for sin and forgiveness has provided for them a place with him where he is. He has prevailed. Do you see? He alone is worthy. Second, their faith is in Jesus Christ for the redemption they have through his shed blood. You have redeemed us to God by your blood. That's an expression of faith in Jesus Christ for having shed his blood to purchase our forgiveness, our salvation. Third, it is the worship of redeemed humanity from the four corners of the earth. Behold, it is too small a thing that Judah should be your possession. Behold, God says, I give you the nations. Every tribe, every tongue, every people, every nation, this is a global kingdom. And just as God had intended in the mandate given to Adam, that Adam would be fruitful and multiply such that the glory of God would cover the face of the earth as the waters cover the sea, that mandate accomplished by the Lord Jesus Christ through the preaching of the gospel as his image bearers, as it were, cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. This is a global kingdom. Four, they delight in Christ for their inheritance. He has made us kings and priests to our God. They delight in God, uh, in Christ for their inheritance. They're made royal priestly sons. We're going to talk about their reign that has already begun. Their reign on the earth has been inaugurated and their reign on the earth will be one day fully consummated as they take their place in the new heavens and the new earth. Royal priestly sons. Five, it involves singing. It involves singing. Singing this new song, as it were. It's interesting in Revelation chapter five. Notice with me, verse nine these 24 elders, and is it the 24 elders and the four living creatures who have a harp and sing this song? The four living creatures aren't represented in this song. 
this song is representative of the church, right? You have redeemed us by your blood, made us kings and priests. And so it's the 24 elders who hold the harp and who are singing this new song, saying, you're worthy to take the scroll. But they sang a new song. Look at verse 12. The angels, the living creatures, the number of them, 10,000 times 10,000, thousands of thousands. It doesn't say that they sing there. It says that they say, saying, worthy is the lamb. Look at verse 13. Every creature in heaven and on earth, under the earth, such as are in the sea, and all that are in them, I heard saying. He doesn't say that he heard them singing. It would appear that this blessing and privilege of song in worship is something that is um, the prerogative of a redeemed humanity, of the church, to sing worship in praise of God's name. It doesn't mean there won't be other singing that goes on in heaven but that it appears as though this is the blessing of God's people. Um, Music, I believe, created by God as a means through which God, by his spirit, engages our affections. (laughs) A way that God, by his spirit, engages our emotions I thought before that one of the reasons that God chooses to save through the foolishness of the message preached is because that message comes through the mouth, if you will, of a redeemed human being. And um, there is emotion, right? Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 that we are to uh, plead. Paul pleads. He implores as though God were pleading through him be reconciled to God. There's something about the emotions and the affections that God created. He, he made us that way. We have emotions. We have affections. We have renewed affections, renewed emotions, renewed desires when we, we become a new creation in the Lord Jesus Christ. And God works through uh, that emotion, works through those affections um, to glorify his own name. And I would submit to you that um, that happens in a, in a substantial or a significant way through, through music. Um, we can hear, obviously we do, the words of God, the truth of God preached. And uh, I pray, you know, preached with um, uh, passion and with heart because we believe, we believe these things that we're, we're talking about here. Um, but there is a significant way in which the singing of songs to God and praise of God, uh, worship of God through music, just fuels the affections and fuels our emotions, fuels our heart's desire for him and glorifies God in a way that is unique to worship through music. So five, they sing. And if you think about that, um, John opens this section of text weeping, weeping, weeping because no one was worthy. And the angel with a strong voice proclaiming says, don't weep. Don't weep. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has prevailed to take the scroll and to open its seals. So God, John goes from weeping to singing. <laughs> uh, the heavenly court, as it were, goes from silence at the angel's question to erupting in the worship of God through song and singing this hymn to God. It's an awesome picture. There's a time for weeping. There's a time for weeping. When we consider our own sin, um, we should be made 
to weep. We consider our own sin. Um, it's right that we would afflict our soul over our own sin. But there, brothers and sisters, there is joy in the morning, <laughs> uh, joy in the Lord Jesus Christ. And we are, of, uh, of all people, have every reason imaginable to absolutely rejoice every day in the Lord Jesus Christ for what he has done for us. Uh, don't, don't allow that weeping to continue. <laughs> Once you contemplate the gifts of God and the gospel, and you know those gospel benefits have been poured out on you as a, as a grace of God, rejoice in the Lord Jesus Christ. Rejoice in the Lord Jesus Christ. Rejoice in the Lord Jesus Christ. And again, I say rejoice. <laughs> rejoice. Stop weeping. Praise God. <laughs> right? Praise God. And if we think about the worship in heaven in Revelation 5, our worship our, how is our worship joined together with theirs? With theirs, Our worship is joined together with theirs in the incense that is offered. You notice that in verse 8. When he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures, the 24 elders, fell down before the Lamb, each having a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. We'll talk about this more next week, but suffice it for now to say, that our prayers are expressions of faith in God. They're expressions of our worship. Our worship goes up into heaven, as it were, and is there represented, signified, in the incense that is offered in worship by the representatives of the church. Uh, that our prayers, as it were, go before God in worship of him as those 24 elders representing the Lord, representing the church, worship before the Lamb. Uh, our worship here is sweet-smelling incense offered before the Lord. The present earthly reign, the present earthly reign of those royal priestly sons of glory, that reign, that worship, evident in the incense that rises into the heavenly worship of God in the throne room. First Peter chapter 2, verse 9, you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a kingly priesthood. Well, how is it that we reign? How is it that our reign has been inaugurated? I want to spend some more time talking about this as well. So that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Our reign on the earth is exemplified, as it were, in the prayers and in the worship of the saints as that worship rises into heaven as a sweet-smelling incense. And, as Peter says, that reign is in the proclamation of the praises of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Proclamation in our gathered worship to God, who is worthy, and proclamation of the gospel, proclamation of his glory and his grace and his mercy to the nations during this time when God is gathering his people out of every tribe, tongue, and nation from the four corners of the earth to worship in heaven. Amen? Beautiful picture of the worship of God. We'll finish this text next week, Lord willing. Our worship is a privilege. Our worship is a blessing. And uh, that should inform how we are to worship him. Let's pray together. Lord, we praise you and thank you for this picture of worship in Revelation chapter five and would pray, Lord, that you, by your spirit, you would continue to to conform our worship to that pattern of worship that we see in the heavenly places. Conform our worship more and more 
to those glorified saints that worship you before your throne. Uh, Conform our worship more and more into the worship of our elder brother who has gone before us as he worships and praises in heaven. And may our worship be acceptable in your sight. We know, Lord, that it is uh, by faith. We know that it is by virtue of the person and work of our Lord Jesus Christ who has brought us into union with himself and always lives to make intercession for us. And uh, we know, Lord, that it is because we are indwelt by your spirit. And our spirit, even when we don't know how to speak as we ought, uh, we know, Lord, that he utters for us with groanings imperceptible, uh, incomprehensible, that take that what otherwise would look at, at like a, a tattered clump of simple flowers and binds them into a beautiful uh, bouquet of worship to you. Uh, We know that the Spirit does that for us. And we praise you and thank you for that truth and look forward and long for the day, hasten the day, when we with the gathered saints will worship you in the new heavens and the new earth. May all praise and glory and honor be to your name, to the one who sits upon the throne and to the Lamb forever and ever. And all God's people say together, amen. We love you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.